and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, you know what the funny thing is, is that even though it's been an incredible year uh, in the stock market, I mean, just extraordinary by all accounts, as everyone knows, I feel like it's also probably been a frustrating one for a lot of investors. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, first of all, markets didn't really do what a lot of people, I guess, would would say they should do rationally uh, in the face of the biggest economic crisis in decades. But I feel like a lot of people just sort of missed various turning points in the market as well and are very, very frustrated. Absolutely. I mean, just super, super high, super high levels of frustration. Also, even if you were long this market and sort of mm. like generally bullish, the only way to have really won this year would be super concentration in tech stocks. And I feel like if you were underexposed to like a handful of tech stocks, which we could count on about two hands, then you're almost guaranteed to be sort of underperforming your benchmark this year, whatever it is. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And of course, we've been talking about for years and years and years that the big tech stocks, uh, FANG, whatever you want to call it, are potentially overvalued. So it's it's doubly ironic that this year you would have underperformed had you not invested in the stocks that people say might be the most overvalued. Right. And of course, that is a big frustration to investors who have been waiting a long time for other sort of factors to do well. So investors like to talk in factors mm -hmm. and the sort of the growth factor has done phenomenally well. But historically, uh, the value factor, so-called cheaper stocks, those have done well. And everyone keeps waiting for this turn or for other factors to emerge, whether it's uh, value or low beta or something else. Uh, never seems to ha uh, happen. And if anything, this year did not prove to be a turning point in the market, but really just sort of uh, an accelerant of it. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm actually looking at a chart from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch right now, and they point out that values relative performance to growth uh, was the worst this year since the dot com bubble. So um, something right. to remember. But we're not this isn't. Yeah. This podcast isn't about value versus growth, is it? No, it's not. But I think that the frustration that people uh, probably have this year does lead to, um, you know, people looking for other approaches to investing. And of course, in times like this, people wonder if like maybe other sort of quantitative or algorithmic strategies, more money should be poured into them as an alternative to this ride where you just sort of buy the big tech stocks and hope that you, you know, avoid the turning point. Well, I guess another way of putting it is a lot of the um, a lot of the quant strategies are sort of momentum based, right? So if you can figure out right. where the money is flowing to, even if it's tech stocks, uh, that might be a good way of investing in the current environment. If everything's about liquidity and following the flows, then quant investing or algorithmic trading, whatever you want to call it, might be a good way forward. Yeah. But, you know, backing up, it's like we talk about quant investing and the, the word quant gets used all the time. And sometimes uh, it's used to describe these super technical funds. And sometimes it gets used to just describe sort of anything that has some statistical analysis. And then that that term feels uh, extremely vague to me. Yeah. And potentially overused as well. Right. Like everyone wants to seem like they are quantitative right. in some way or another. No one wants to say that they're investing purely on emotion and gut feeling and that kind of stuff. So uh, quant gets bandied about quite a bit. So today we are going to uh, talk with an expert who is a uh, knows a lot about quant investing, studies it, 
can help us define it and uh, also hopefully sort of explain to us what it takes to win in the space. Because again, everyone sort of wants to be in the space, even uh, you know traditional uh, hedge funds over the years have allocated more and more money to quant, to hiring PhDs, to building up their uh, computer systems. Uh, but what it really takes to win and can lots of players succeed is still uh, kind of an open question. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And as we're going to discuss, quant investing is probably one of the most expensive ventures that you can sort of embark on. Yes. Okay. So without further ado, let's bring in our guest. He is an expert in the field. He is Siamak Malemi. He is a professor of business. Or he's a professor at the Columbia Business School, done a lot of research in the area of uh, quant investing. He's also a part-time uh, partner at a uh, fund himself. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. When I say quant investing, or when people say quant investing, what does that mean to you? Like, how would you just define that term in, so that it's a useful so that it's a useful term? Well, people have different definitions. I personally define it as having uh, two key characteristics. Um, the first characteristic is that uh, the investment process is entirely systematic. So there's many different types of types of investment strategies uh, that that people implement that employ at some level quantitative uh, methods. But I think the key to the quantitative methods that uh, we're going to speak about today is that at the trade by trade level, there is no discretion, right? Um, you you set up uh, um, uh, an algorithm, uh, a particular system on a you know second by second trade by trade basis. The um, everything is being automatically done. You know that isn't to say that there isn't like a, a portfolio manager involved. But the job of the portfolio manager is not so much deciding on trades and sizing them and so on, but more um, uh, setting up the computer algorithms in advance and tweaking them and improving them over time. So, so that's really the first uh, big component, to be um, uh, entirely systematic, i.e. Not, um, non-discretionary. The second component of the ones that I focus on is that they're really um, active investment strategies in the sense that um, you're buying now because you think the asset will be worth more later. It's, it's mispriced in some level. Or alternatively, you're selling short now because you think the, uh, the value later will be, uh, will be lower. There are other flavors of quantitative strategies that are um, somewhat more passive, um, things like uh, you know, exotic beta, uh, in, investing in um, uh, factors and so on. Um, those are um, not so much a little bit less my area, and uh, I have my own views on them we can get into later perhaps. But the key things I'm thinking about here, you're using algorithms and, uh, and, and data and machine learning and so on. You're taking an active view on um, what the current prices are relative to what, you know, uh, the value might be later. So... Is quant investing proof that markets aren't efficient? I feel like this comes up a lot, but maybe it's worth asking this question early on. If the whole strategy is to automatically arbitrage price discrepancies in the short term versus the long term, does that mean that markets aren't doing their job? Well, I mean, I think if you want to sort of take the straw man that the markets are, you know, sort of 100% efficient and prices are incorporating all potential information, I think that's clearly not true. And I think um, the long-term success uh, and incredible performance of you know quant investors like Renaissance is uh, is, is sort of one piece of that. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean that uh, markets are uh, um, completely uh, uh, inefficient either. Lasse Peterson, who's from uh, from NYU and AQR, he has a, he has a nice phrase called inefficiently uh, efficient, or I should say efficiently inefficient, uh, meaning that uh, um, there are inefficiencies, but it's a competitive game, and there are lots of smart people with you know, a lot of resources going after these inefficiencies. And when you identify them and trade on them, um, they, they disappear, they're arbed away. 
So, you know, the, these, these inefficiencies typically lie around the frontier of, of the transaction cost of what it costs to trade. So, um, uh, yes, there are inefficiencies, but they're, they're hard to find and, you know, they disappear over time. So one common uh, uh, concept that quants talk about is, uh, is, is alpha decay. Like you, you identify some, uh, some signal or some inefficiency and, uh, you know, generates a certain amount of PNL on, and literally year over year, you can see that decay away. And, you know, that's, that's because that inefficiency eventually is identified by other people. And as more and more people trade on it, you know, again, it, it disappears. So it's not that uh, um, you set up an algorithm and it just, uh, you know, sort of uh, prints money, um, uh, you know, some sort of gross violation of the, uh, the efficient markets hypothesis. That's, that's not how it works. The people who um, uh, are successful at this are constantly investing and deploying uh, enormous resources, hiring large numbers of PhDs. And uh, um, progressively innovating in order to have new models because because the old stuff will simply stop working. So it sounds like I mean, I guess you just said it, but it sounds like the key to winning and we'll get more granular in a second is that continuous process. It's not about identifying some flaw in the market or some inefficiency or some opportunity to make money. It's about having a team and a process to keep finding those over and over again. That's right. Again, because uh, all the inefficiencies that I've ever seen are, uh, are, are short-lived. So can you maybe um, talk to us a little bit more then about how a quant strategy might be developed? So obviously you have the technological aspect of it, uh, the need for computers that are able to trade very, very quickly. Uh, you have the need for servers, uh, many of them co-located close to the exchanges. But then you also have proprietary data sets sometimes, uh, and then you have proprietary algorithms. So how does that all come together into one quant strategy? And, and which one of those is sort of the most or the biggest investment for a quant firm? Got it. So I, I think there's definitely a, a technological investment um, may or may not involve things like uh, co-location near the exchanges. So at least uh, anecdotally, for example, Renaissance, which is the most uh, successful quantitative firm, uh, does not co-locate. Um, you know, again, I, I don't know, but that's uh, that's that's what I've heard. Co-location is quite important when you're um, uh, trading uh, and, and you require very low latency, and and that's typically um, uh, the high frequency trading domain, and which again intersects with with quant in in many ways. But if you're looking um, a little bit longer, if your horizons are a little bit longer, uh, it, it becomes a little bit uh, a little bit less important. Your broader point, I think, is correct. Technology is important. I think um, more important is kind of a, a, a research process. There, there's a number of kind of high level pieces to a, a successful quantitative strategy. It's not like uh, um, there's just a black box and um, uh, in goes data, out goes uh, trades. There's there's a number of pieces in there that uh, um, you sort of split the problem into to kind of make it manageable. Um, at the front end, um, you know, going back to the heart of uh, active investing, you, you got to have a view on asset prices, right? So you're trading some universe of, I don't know, U.S. equities, something like that. You got to have a view stock by stock. What's the price going to be in a day, um, uh, um, two weeks, uh, a month, so on and so forth, right? And so um, that front end is, is called um, uh, um, signal generation or, or, or generating alphas, right? Using um, data and machine learning techniques to come up with uh, uh, anomalies to, uh, that, that you identify and then you build models upon to sort of uh, um, uh, make a prediction of uh, um, uh, what, the, uh, what, the, what the price is going to be. So there's all sorts of uh, um, types of data 
and uh, um, uh, algorithms that people use. Historically, much of quant investment has been um, building um, what are called uh, um, uh, quote unquote technical models, wherein basically you're using historical price and trade data to forecast future price movements. Right, so you might think of uh, things like uh, momentum or uh, or reversals or so on and so forth. That's you know leveraging you know kind of purely uh, um, uh, um, technical data from the markets. Um, what we've seen uh, emerge really over the past ten years is there's also been a shift to sort of a quote unquote uh, alternative data. Right, so you might look at things like uh, you know everybody's heard the famous story of satellite images of parking lots, right? To try and assess, you know, uh, um, is you know what's the occupancy at Walmart this year? Going to they're going to make their earnings? You know, quantitative investor would take that kind of data and leverage it to a model which forecasts, okay, um, what's the return going to be for Walmart over the next week, the next month, the next two months, and so on, right? So at, at the front end, you have uh, um, uh, this this identifying. The, the data combined with the machine learning technology, which is going to build uh, um, uh, build predictions. Now, oftentimes you're looking at, um, or, or I should say, really always these days, you're looking at having many many uh, um, uh, anomalies. So you may have a technical model based on momentum and reversals. You may have bought a whole bunch of parking lot data. You have some some model for the retail sector based on that. You have some some credit card data, some social media data, maybe some some news data. You have all of these, and so the second part of the process is to kind of uh, combine these different uh, types of signals or views into sort of one composite view. Because at the end of the day, um, all, all you care about is, 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 is net net, is this asset price going to go up or go down? And, and, and that part is called uh, um, uh, alpha mixing or signal mixing, right? Um, you have these, these separate models that, uh, that, that you've built and you want to combine them to, to one kind of uh, um, a composite view. So um, that's that's kind of the, the the front end again, having a, a view on what prices are going to be over the uh, the relevant timeframes. Historically, that is where the vast majority of uh, um, uh, the energy was spent. The idea was that if you have uh, good signals, if you have good predictions, you can make money. If you don't have good signals, you're not going to make money, and the rest of it doesn't matter so much. So I believe if you don't have signals, you're not going to make money. That's certainly true. But um, uh, these days, the market has gotten uh, competitive enough. And there are enough kind of quant players that um, what you do with the signals also matters, how you try to, uh, to monetize them. So here, the, the kind of the next step is that you have a, a now, um, uh, you know, you're waking up, it's open to the market, it's 930 in the morning, right? You have a, a prediction for, you know, a universe of 3000 US equities. Now you have to kind of decide um, what's the target portfolio you want to form. So that's kind of a, called a portfolio construction phase, right? And so the kind of things you're thinking about are um, uh, balancing sort of a risk versus return. You know, you don't want to be um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, long or short. Maybe you want to be market neutral. You don't want too much exposure in uh, individual sectors. You know, um, uh, so on and so forth. Right. Um, you're balancing that also with, uh, with 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 transaction costs and, and so on. And you kind of decide, like, um, uh, you know, again, based on what my current view is of the world, um, uh, what's the target portfolio I want to hold. And this is something you periodically revisit. It used to be sort of a, um, a quant sort of, you know, traded once a day and had a, um, a trade list at the beginning of the day and, you know, um, uh, generated trades and revisited the next day. Now it's much more of a continuous procedure because, you know, as, uh, as the market evolves and as you get more data and news comes out and so on, those underlying views which are driving the trades are, uh, are, are changing. So, so that's the kind of the middle piece, um, figuring out what, what portfolio to hold. And, and then the final piece is actually um, sort of generating the trades. Sometimes quants do this themselves. I think more and more quants are doing this themselves. Um, you can farm this also to uh, um, uh, basically every major um, bank or prime broker that services uh, quants has uh, an, an agency algorithms desk that will do this for you. But here, here the idea is, okay, I've decided I need to buy um, $2 million of Google stock over the, uh, the next 15 minutes. Um, uh, how can I do that? 
Um, you know, should I use exchanges? Should I use dark pools? Um, uh, how should I uh, uh, spread that out over time? Um, you know, should I use limit orders, market orders, um, uh, this kind of thing. And uh, again, historically, um, you know, people focused a little bit less on that. But now as the market has gotten more, more competitive, it's also um, being important. If, you, if you're not doing those latter two phases, the portfolio construction and the, uh, um, the, the trade optimization well, you're, you're leaving money on the table in a, in a way that almost may, may, not, be, uh, may not be profitable. I, I think one thing that's, that's not obvious, or I should say it's quite different about quant trading versus uh, other types of hedge fund trading. If you look at a guy like, uh, um, uh, you know, I don't know, just to sort of pick someone random like Bill Ackman, right? Um, when, when he goes in and, and, and buys a stock, he has like, you know, really kind of a um, strong uh, um, uh, conviction. He takes a massive positions and he also, he probably expects to make 50% or, you know, something like that. Again, I, I don't do that type of trading. I don't know, but he expects to make tens of percents, right? A quant in any individual position, you probably measure your expected profit in basis points, right? And it's of this and, and you know, you, you might expect to make three basis points and the transaction costs are two basis points, right? So you really like carefully controlling your costs and managing execution and so on. Is extremely important. Like you know, Bill Ackman, if he thinks he's going to make twenty percent uh, on on a particular trade, it doesn't matter if he's paying uh, you know um, two basis points or, or twenty basis points or even hundred basis points. Right? He's going to make so much more in, in, in his mind that's irrelevant. Whereas for, for for quants, you're really operating on a very thin margin. First of all, that was a sort of great explanation of the uh, whole process. Really nice overview. But I want to go back to just the sort of search for the original signals or search for the sort of um, the the initial inputs, and I'm thinking about large tech companies like Microsoft and Google and Facebook, and how they have a lot of like researchers who are engaged in sort of pure tech research, and you know always out there filing patents. And there's probably a long uh, sort of distance between anything that they discover and their own research budget, um, and then what ultimately might show up in a consumer product or a business product. And I'm curious if there is sort of a, an analogy in Quantland where you have people who really are sort of at the frontier without a sort of crystal clear idea of, OK, this is going to lead to something that will turn into a trade. But it's that process of sort of really uh, exploring that frontier, which eventually leads to uh, concrete ideas that do lead to trades. And I'm curious if that's sort of like the analogy and how uh, investors and how the portfolio managers think about ex where to explore and where those frontiers are and where to invest expensive sort of time, energy, and computing power in discovering these uh, alpha-generating signals. So I think quantitative investors operate quite differently than some of the research groups in, in big tech places. Like if you go to a place like Google Research or Microsoft Research, it's really not that different than an academic institution. Um, mm. their, their main output is really um, papers. Right in journal papers, conference papers, uh, so on and so forth, uh, and it's really just a, a different way to do uh, almost academic research, kind of the classical uh, Bell Labs model. And and maybe um, I mean they they do consult on internal projects and so forth, but um, I think in the in, in the quant world it is much 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 more applied. So I think typically the kind of thing would be like uh, um, uh, you think uh, you know um, uh, maybe someone comes to you a vendor or or you identify a data set that you might uh, you, that you think um, might have some relevance. You start uh, looking at uh, building various models of trying to predict prices or you know things that are relative uh, relevant to prices. You try and pair in some uh, different um, uh, machine learning kind of techniques. But I think from the beginning, it's really um, oriented around uh, concrete things like uh, let me build a price for let me build a model. Sorry for for what the return of this asset is going to be over the next month, right? Or let me build a model for uh, um, 
how I should uh, efficiently trade uh, on large blocks of stock over the next uh, um, uh, 15 minutes. Broadly speaking, it's much less of the uh, um, sort of uh, um, blue sky uh, research. That that isn't to say that some people don't do that. I think uh, I think people do, but uh, um, the the incentives aren't there um, uh, because you know for the most part, speaking for 99% of practitioners, um, there's no publishing. Right. And uh, um, I think people are, are extremely um, uh, paranoid and, and, and sensitive because if uh, if your IP leaks and other people do similar things, maybe what you do will stop working as well. And so there's uh, there, there's not that much of uh, an incentive to uh, to do that versus the very kind of uh, visceral incentive of, uh, you know, um, making uh, money, having, you know, outperforming the market in the, in, in the short term. So so research in, in, in the quant world, for the most part, tends to be much more applied. I have a sort of related question, but why is why is quant investing or why are quants so um, secretive about everything? Or I, I mean, I don't want to call them weird, but there is this sort of like odd culture <laughs> around quant investing. And you think of places like Renaissance and Citadel, they're all sort of shrouded in mystique. I once heard that Citadel had an original Enigma machine from World War II in one of its offices. I don't know if that's true, but just the fact that people are saying this kind of thing tells you something about how they regard these big story quant companies. Why is there this like very specific culture, mysterious, secretive culture? So I think broadly speaking, um, People in um, the the buy side, people in the hedge fund industry, are are, are generally secretive. But I think the um, with, with regards to sort of their internal IP and, and and processes. But I think the nature of IP in the quant space uh, creates incentives for people to be uh, more secretive, right? So again, just you know, pulling our uh, hypothetical kind of Bill Ackman uh, example, if he identifies some uh, asset that's undervalued. Um, uh, he's going to be sort of uh, um, very quiet about it until he goes in and uh, um, uh, accumulates the, uh, the the position he wants because he doesn't want other people to know and other people to front run him and to sort of take that opportunity away. Now, once he's amassed that position, perhaps he'll actually start even advertising it, right? Because uh, now it's sort of people sort of uh, follow him, works to his benefit, and he'll push prices in the uh, the, the the way that he wants. The, the quant space doesn't quite work like that. Like, again, any individual trade is a very short horizon, maybe a couple of weeks, right? Trades are, are, are sort of uh, very small and uh, diffused across many, many uh, uh, assets. But the, the idea of the trade, the, the, the data source coupled with the whatever's generating the signal, the machine learning methodology and so on, that has lasting value. That might um, you know, work for, for the next six years. Again, year on year, it will, uh, the, the performance goes down as uh, anomalies disappear, but uh, you know, it has multiple years of value. So uh, I, the, the general feeling is if people sort of figure out what you're doing and um, where the opportunities are and what data sets you're doing and so on, they will also do a similar kind of thing. They will, they will copy you and uh, then those anomalies will disappear faster. You know, at least in my experience, because of the, uh, um, the longer time horizons over which this, uh, um, this IP decays, people are, are more paranoid about uh, um, uh, being a, a extremely secretive. And that's not only for, for outsiders, but that's even within firms. So, so many firms are uh, siloed down to the level of uh, individual quant researchers, where um, uh, you may be, um, uh, you know, you may have a team of uh, um, a couple dozen people, all, um, uh, let's say, under a single PM, all working on the same uh, overall strategy, but um, uh, you won't know what the guy next to you is working on. 
right? And if you pass data sets across, maybe you uh, um, label them in sort of random ways and so on. So you, no, nobody, nobody sort of uh, maybe has a, the full picture except uh, a handful of people um, uh, on, on the top. And again, the idea there is that you know over time, um, uh, people quit or, or, or leave or whatever. Um, you want um, the, the firms would like them to to have as little of the IP as possible in terms uh, of uh, um, you know not decaying the value of their own IP. Now, I think famously, Renaissance does not operate this way. So, Re Renaissance is uh, um, one example I've heard where um, a firm which is uh, um, I think very very difficult to get into in terms of being hired, but but once you're in there, they're quite open in terms of uh, what are the different things we've tried, what are the things that are working now, what are the things that haven't worked before, and you know, so on and so forth. And I think actually from the perspective of research, that works much better. Um, quant researchers tend to, uh, um, you know, believe it or not, tend to be uh, kind of social animals. And it's, it's always more fun to work on things with other people rather than just sort of uh, sit at your desk with, uh, with, the, with the blinders on and so on. You know, interesting about Renaissance is how they've been able to um, manage it so that very, very few people have, uh, have, have left and uh, it seems like uh, you know they they have not had the uh, the kind of IP loss that uh, that other people worry about. So Renaissance famously just puts up extraordinary numbers year after year after year, and the sort of the trick or one trick besides there being a bunch of mathematical geniuses is a having this sort of open culture of uh, collaboration and uh, research and be somehow preventing uh, a lot of exodus so that no one else has really been able to replicate their approaches uh, uh, in any way. How hard is this? So you think about like someone like, I don't know, like you hear about other other managers like, you know, Steve Cohen is like, oh, I want to uh, allocate money to quant. How hard is it? And this is sort of something I want to explore more now is like, how hard is it to sort of ante up into that game and to sort of start being competitive if this is if you're sort of starting from zero right now um i think it's uh it's a tough place it's a it's a it's a competitive game maybe not so much anymore but over the past uh five seven years um uh, my general perspective is that the uh, um buy side active uh, um, uh managing sort of hedge funds have been shrinking overall the one sector that has not been shrinking is quant and so I think there has been uh, an entrance of uh, um, uh, kind of new players there. Um, now, um, Steve Cohn, you specifically mentioned, he's actually been at it for a while. He's been in the quant space for the uh, since the uh, um, early 2000s. Mm. He, on the order of 20 to 30% of his assets are actually quant, some, 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 something like that, like uh. a non, you know, people mainly think of him as a long, short uh, um, right. uh, kind of guy. And, and that's probably mainly what he is. But again, um, you know, maybe a third of his assets are in, in, in quant space through, uh, through Cubist and so on. Now, he operates very differently. Um, he operates, uh, his quant funds operate in uh, uh, kind of like a traditional um, long short guys operate, wherein you hire uh, individual PMs. You watch them uh, um, uh, very kind of carefully. They make money or they lose money. If, 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 they, if they're not making money quickly enough, you fire them. And uh, um, uh, you sort of, uh, you kind of have a portfolio of these, these individual managers who are, who are doing their own thing, who are tightly siloed. And, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, you, you try to manage that. And, and, and that's the way his quant uh, uh, operation manages. So there's, uh, you know, again, um, a whole bunch of uh, small, um, uh, let's call them pods or whatever, of, uh, you know, two or three people each kind of doing their own thing in an uncoordinated way. You know, that's, again, quite a different model than, let's say, the, the Renaissance, which is, uh, um, uh, you know, one kind of uh, open strategy. And I think the, the advantage of the Steve Cohen model is that... Uh, um, you know, uh, it's it's easy to to hire people. Um, the HR process is very easy. You don't have to care when people come and go and so on because you're not really investing in any of their uh, their individual IP, 
right? When, when someone leaves uh, or like, let's say you fire someone, it's because they didn't do well and whatever they have is maybe not worth uh, um, uh, that much and they don't know anything else about what your other PMs are doing. And so, so that process is very easy. But I think the downside is that uh, what we're sort of starting to see is throughout the quant space, like you know, the broader technology industry, we're starting to see that there are a lot of uh, increasing uh, um, uh, returns to scale. That as you get bigger and bigger, um, uh, firms are able to build advantages. And one kind of uh, concrete source of this is around trading costs, right? Um, uh, when you're thinking about like, let's say on an individual trade by trade basis, do I wanna get into this trade? You have a prediction of uh, how much you're gonna make if, you're, uh, if your models are correct, but also there are these costs that you're paying, these, these, these transaction costs. And if your prediction doesn't exceed your costs, you shouldn't put on that trade because even in the best case, you're, uh, you're not gonna make your money, right? So um, uh, what, what's happened is that uh, as um, more and more people have gotten into the, the, the quant space and more and more of these anomalies sorry, are identified and markets get uh, more efficient, the signals have gotten weaker. Right, and so um, just to sort of give a give a, a maybe a concrete example, one signal that's sort of uh, um, quite well known throughout the the quant industry and uh, um, even you know, academics have published papers and so on is order book imbalance. Right, if you go out and you look at an electronic order book and there are more buyers than there are uh, sellers in terms of the uh, the resting limit orders, um, it's it's more likely that the price will go up than go down. Right, you can you can go out and try that. That has a predictive value now. However, if if, if that's all you know, um, you won't make money. Because you might think the price is going to go up a, a you know a tenth of a basis point just to throw out a number, but your transaction costs are two basis points, and you know you're just not uh, um, you can't exceed your uh, your, your costs. So um, the transaction costs, to a first approximation, they're they're kind of like on a trade by trade basis a fixed cost that you have to exceed. Now, if you are in a world where you have many many signals, maybe tens, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands, and you're adding them up and they're independent, and you trade when they're all aligned. Now you can have sort of uh, um, uh, you know signals that are weak individually, and nevertheless, when you when you combine them, when you aggregate them, you are able to exceed transaction costs and uh, and, and monetize them. So that that order imbalance signal that I just sort of uh, um, uh, talked about, if if you're sort of one guy in your basement and that's all you knew, you can't make money off that. But if you have twenty other signals and you're you know you're going to put on a trade anyway, in some sense, the transaction costs become a, a sunk cost, and and that you know. 0.1 basis point that you're going to get because of this well-known signal, that becomes free money. So, so as you get that kind of economies of scale because of fixed costs, I think it becomes harder and harder to have um, quant strategies where um, you don't have a lot of people um, you know, in a very kind of coordinated research process where you have people working essentially uh, independently. Um, the, the, the kinds of uh, um, you know, places that are structured like, uh, like let's say, Renaissance, again, where um, uh, you might have uh, like 200 quant researchers all working on different uh, aspects of the thing. And then, you know, these things combine to one sort of overall view of the market. I think that is able to sort of uh, better monetize uh, uh, a lot of these signals in this kind of more competitive world. So on that note, if, if you are running a lot of these strategies, getting a lot of these signals, and you're able to lower your transaction costs because of that scale, and at the same time, quant investing has these big barriers to entry because you have to have these technological outlays, you have to hire a bunch of PhDs and things like that. Does that mean that the industry is inevitably sort of trending towards a monopoly? Are, are we going to get a situation where there is just one or maybe two or three really big quant investors because no one else can compete with them effectively? I think we're kind of there. I mean, I think there are only a handful of large quants. Most of them have been doing it for a long time. I mean, 
you have, you know, Renaissance, DE Shaw, PDT, Two Sigma, you know, there's, there, there's a, there's a handful of others. I think it's, it's uh, harder to see, you know, maybe there, there are some exceptions, you know, in terms of uh, funds that have launched uh, um, uh, more, more recently, but it's difficult to see people of, uh, of, 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 of that scale with, with this with similar track records. So, so I think we are seeing uh, um, some degree of, uh, of, of consolidation. I don't know what the, ulti- I mean, I don't know if it's going to um, uh, come down to one firm. I think, you know, probably not. There's, there's probably room for, for kind of more competition, but I think it will be harder to have uh, um, uh, sort of uh, either either more independent managers or like uh, um, uh, kind of the siloed model of places like, uh, you know, um, uh, SAC and Millennium. If I want to start a quant fund, what are we talking about in terms of how much it's just going to cost for computers and data just to even get in the game? Don't do it, Joe. I feel like this whole conversation is about how you shouldn't be doing that. No, I realize. I realize that (laughs) it's a bad idea. But let's say I'm an idiot and I try anyway. Like, what are we talking about? So um, I think things have gotten over time um, much more expensive things like uh, uh, data feeds and uh, um, you know so on um, the exchanges have constantly been uh, ramping the prices on, on on these things but um, you know these days what's become um, uh, one of the biggest costs is actually just pure computation and and this is also a trend we see um, uh, you know more broadly in uh, uh, technology you know if you look at uh, kind of the state-of-the-art models for things like um, uh, computer vision, object recognition for, um, uh, you know, playing games like uh, chess and Go and so on. These types of uh, um, uh, models leverage approaches in machine learning that are really based on uh, having a lot of data and doing, um, uh, even more than that, doing a lot of computation. And and, and so the spirit there, um, you know, coming out of places like DeepMind at Google or OpenAI and, and stuff, um, uh, OpenAI, um, uh, was, you know, artificial intelligence uh, um, uh, company, their, their main model is, is literally like, uh, we're going to do simple things, but we're going to leverage it to massive scale computation. Right. And uh, so so I think you're starting to see that in uh, um, uh, finance as well, where um, uh, you need to do things like, let's say you need to um, uh, um, backtest a, a trading strategy, um, but you have some parameters and you want to try tens of thousands of combinations of those trading parameters. And each one involves a simulation over you know 20 years and, and so on and so forth. You, you need a lot of uh, um, uh, computers. So um, uh, someone told me anecdotally that at a, um, a major quant shop, each uh, um, quantitative uh, researcher is given kind of a quote-unquote budget of, uh, of, of 10,000 CPUs, right? So at, at any given time, they can use up to 10,000 individual kind of uh, um, uh, processing units. And just to give you a sense of what that costs, um, you know, if you were to go, you know, uh, buy that on, uh, on a- Amazon and AWS, that would be order of magnitude, um, uh, maybe a million dollars a year. Right, and this is just for uh, this is just for research. This is not to actually generate the trades or whatever. This is just to you know tune all the parameters and and and, and sort of really optimize your performance. That's really interesting. It kind of makes me wonder how um, how good I guess academic research is at gauging quant strategies if the outlays just to run a few experiments are so massive. But on a slightly different topic, I wanted to ask you. I guess. This question is kind of inevitable whenever you talk about algorithmic trading or systematic trading. What value do you think quant investing actually creates for society? So, for instance, when we talk about traditional investing, that's supposed to channel capital in the most efficient way possible to 
good companies, and that should, in theory, benefit the entire economy. But quant investing, as we've discussed, isn't really about that. It's about arbitraging these small differences. So maybe it makes prices slightly more efficient, but is that worth the enormous infrastructure investment uh, that we've been discussing being spent on it? So I think there is um, there are some benefits. You know, it, it varies based on the strategy and uh, based on really the instant time. But I think a lot of uh, um, you know, to to a first approximation, if you see a price move in a direction that's unusual, um, it could continue or it could revert, right? To the extent that you think it's going to revert, you're going to sort of uh, bet against it. And what uh, what that amounts to is basically um, supplying temporary liquidity to the market. Right, so I think the the the, the positive aspect to uh, um, uh, quantitative investing is that um, uh, I think a lot of it is supplying liquidity to the market on a horizon of uh, um, uh, let's say days to uh, to weeks. Right now, the flip side is uh, if you're if you're um, uh, really it's more of a momentum bet, you might be uh, accelerating um, uh, the trends. Um, you're taking away liquidity. You're competing for that liquidity, but as you said, maybe you're making uh, um, uh, prices more uh, more efficient. So I think on balance, uh, I think net net probably there is some benefit. I think it's probably small, uh, admittedly. Uh, is it worth all these uh, um, you know very smart people being drawn away from other fields and so on? Uh, I, I'm not sure, but you know probably uh, as much or more resources are spent at places like uh, Facebook and Google getting people to click on ads, right? Yeah. I'm not sure that that's uh, um, as positive uh, either. Touché, it's depressing yeah. thing about all these people. Um... You know, looking for signals uh, to squeeze out three basis points in the market because there could be some great innovations in squeezing more ads onto a mobile phone <laughs> that they'd be working on. Instead. There you go. So, kind of a sad allocation of resources. See, you think Joe's joking, but he's he probably is. <laughs> so uh, here's one thing that also always tends to come up. It's this idea of. Um, this type of trading reaching the limits of available technology and pushing the strategies to sort of greater extremes, but those extremes eventually have limits. And so I guess I'm just wondering, is there a limit to quant investing? Is there a point at which quants sort of arbitrage everything out of the market and the signals are no longer useful or the algorithms themselves are impacting the market in some way. And on that note, what's what's the next big uh, thing in quant investing, I guess? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's a constant balance. These inefficiencies are being identified and arbitraged away because there's uh, um, money in it. Right. And so as they're arbitraged in it, um, the money sort of disappears and then you get sort of uh, fewer people kind of doing it. But um, uh, so long as uh, there is, uh, um, you know, kind of uh, um, traders out there who are not paying attention to this stuff and, uh, you know, the, the, the Robin Hood traders or whatever and are, are, are kind of leaving um, money on the table, um, uh, there will be people um, uh, there who are trying to uh, sweep up the crumbs. In terms of where it's going, what the what the next uh, um, a big thing is, uh, I think it's, it's it's pretty hard to predict. But I think um, uh, you know broadly a shift towards uh, um, things that are even more black box, even more um, uh, computationally driven, 
and uh, um, not so much, uh, um, you know, have like kind of nice structural explanations. Um, uh, again, sort of uh, following a lot of what's going on in, in, in the tech world hmm. as we shift to ideas like uh, um, deep neural networks and reinforcement learning and, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, you know, again, you have these these systems that uh, work work great for, let's say, uh, um, playing Go, but it's really hard to explain uh, um, uh, what's going on. And I think we're starting to see that in the uh, the, the quant world uh, as well. Again, leveraging uh, um, our computation, but really, really ending up with with things that are, you know, um, you know, black boxes that, uh, you know, just are completely not transparent. So in other words, you know, like you could look at something like satellite images and say, oh, there's a lot of cars parked at Walmart and then predict that Walmart stock is going to be up. But the next um, the next generation of things to watch out for is this works and it works consistently, but we as humans can't really articulate why. Exactly. <laughs> That's super interesting. Well, on that note of uh, humans not really even being being able to uh, explain what they're doing, uh, seems like a perfect place to stop. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Tracy, you know, uh, as a as a media person, I have my own experience with uh, the sort of alpha decay that CMAC was talking about. Do you know what it is? <laughs> um, did you build some sort of algorithm to take advantage of like Google ads or something and then it stopped working? No, no, it was nothing uh, so sophisticated. But back in the early days of like blogging and stuff, I remember this phenomenon where you would come up with some like headline construction. You'd be like, Five things you need to know today. Oh yes. And, or, or remember, like the old upworthy headlines. They were like, and you could, and you can't guess what, you know. And then those work, and those generate like excess traffic, yeah. and they get shared on Facebook. And then everybody discovers that these headline cliches work, and then everyone does them, and then people stop clicking on them. And you need to like find. I don't do clickbait anymore, but I always thought at the time like that was like a very similar process to uh to the sort of uh quant approach to investing, the sort of uh, search for alpha and alpha decay of uh, blog headlines. Any more was the key word in that sentence about clickbait. But um, I think it's a really good analogy. <laughs> it is a good analogy because like the usefulness of those headline constructions decays over time, as you point out, because more people are copying them. But it yeah. also kind of gets to that point about the limits of this type of investing. There are only so many ways that you can construct a headline and eventually people kind of catch on to different ones and they become um, not so enticing. And I kind of wonder if the same thing could eventually happen to quant investing. So obviously there are many, many more possibilities in quant investing and it's possible that markets are always changing. And so opportunities for arbitrage and identifying these signals are always coming up, but it does make you wonder. It certainly does. And what uh, he was talking about at the end, where maybe the signals of the future are just things that work but can't be articulated, is just like a super <laughs> kind of fascinating phenomenon to just like wrap your head around. Yeah, I feel like that's a good microcosm for maybe the human experience in the future. Like we have the technology. Yeah. We're not entirely sure how it works, but we're just going to sort of let it run and hope for the best. One other thing that sort of interested me is like a sort of thing to watch going forward is, OK, so we talked about a huge aspect of that was just the costs and how like 
you might be able to identify a profitable anomaly, but unless the cost of getting the data and executing the trade is lower than that, it's um it's useless. But you know, you also have to wonder like, okay, right now, like a certain handful of uh, exchanges say control a lot of the uh, trade data costs. In theory, that seems like an area where maybe new entities will come and find a way to provide data cheaper. Amazon Web Services, you know, presumably computation costs are going to keep coming down. You know, obviously that was a big breakthrough from probably the old days where you had some sort of mainframe on-premise services, you know, computation has gotten cheaper. So there's probably always going to be new opportunities to squeeze out even smaller profits because there are ways to shave costs in sort of your uh, in your research, your work. Yeah, maybe. The other thing that was really interesting was the idea that quants, um, I think CMAC described them as actually social animals, which kind of flies in the face, yeah. I think, of a lot of stereotypes. But I'm, all, I'm really curious. I would love to be embedded in a firm like Citadel and just observe how they work together and what's considered a good algo, a good systematic strategy versus a bad systematic strategy. Obviously, you want it to make money, but are there certain things that are more valued over others, maybe cheapness to execute or, um, I don't know, risk management, something like that. I'd, I'd be so curious to see how that all works. Um, I'm sure if we just walked in, they just let us in the door and let we could just hang out there for a while. Yeah, Kuvana, I'm sure. You know. they, they wouldn't just, mind at just, all. No, let us see their whiteboards, stuff like that. <laughs> They'd be into that. Citadel, if you're listening, uh, we would like to come visit you. Okay, should we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest on Twitter, CMAC Malemi. He's at CMAC. Follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson, at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening.